So tonight we're going to be in Luke 19 uh, as we talk about um, kind of a side story or rather kind of a behind-the-scenes look um, at uh, what was going on in Luke's gospel. Now, um, you probably know that as we've been studying in the mornings, we've been talking about um, kind of what was going on in and around the person of Jesus. We haven't really talked about the side characters. Uh, of course, uh, you know, we did talk about Peter this morning, but of course that was in, in, uh, in and around his interaction with Jesus. Tonight we're going to kind of look at kind of what was going on behind the scenes, particularly with the enemies or the opposition um, of Jesus. Uh, so again, a really special um, episode, special edition of this uh, journey to see through the eyes of the original followers of Jesus and those that originally encountered Jesus um, as, as Luke um, sought to compile a narrative um, of all that had taken place. He wanted to write an orderly account uh, that would give assurance and add certainty uh, to every reader and every hearer's heart uh, that Jesus was indeed the King, the long-awaited Savior of the whole world. And that, that's kind of Luke's moral, Luke's motive in writing this gospel. Uh, we've talked about the key themes of Luke's story and, and how Jesus provided some things the people uh, were expecting. He, he fit some of the categories of Messiah that they were anticipating, but he also brought some things and talked about some things, introduced some things that they were not expecting and that they didn't really know that they needed. So we've studied uh, about how Jesus brought some big things, some important things, some Old Testament predicted things. Jesus ushered in the presence of God, a pardon from God, and the power of God in a personal way, right? Jesus brought the presence of God as they were waiting in the temple, right? right. Zechariah, Simon, Anna, all those in the early chapters of Luke, they were in the temple expecting God's presence to come back to the temple, but that's not where God's presence was coming back to, right? His presence wasn't going to be exclusive to a building. It was going to be exclusive to a person, right? The person of Jesus... And of course, we know the end of the story, the presence does not stay in Jesus, but he sends his presence to all believers, right? That's where all this is going, right? It starts in a temple. God could only be experienced in the back corner of a holy building. But when you get to the end of Acts, his presence is all around the known world, isn't that big, right? In the Old Testament, God was confined to a box in the Holy of Holies behind dozens of curtains where only one man once a year could experience His presence, right? And that's where we open up Luke. We see a priest in the Holy of Holies hoping that God's presence would come back. And by the end of Luke's story, God's presence is everywhere. That Paul would stand on a hill called Mars, right? He would stand at Athens and say, He is all around us. You can feel Him. You can know Him. You can receive Him. And that's such, that's such a wild idea compared to what the Jews expected. Of course, God brought a pardon through Jesus that they were expecting the Passover lamb, right? Another Passover lamb who would just really do what the, the Passover lamb in, did in Exodus or did in Egypt, right? A, a lamb who would pardon Israel for its sins, but sacrifices would have to be continued, right? And they continually sacrificed lambs year after year, season after season, but Jesus came to be a full and final sacrifice, pardon, Passover for sin, and of course, Jesus brought the power of God in a real, present, personal way. We saw him exercise and demonstrate this power through healing, through miracles, as a preview of what he can do over the sinful hearts of men and women. 
We've talked about the parables that Jesus told and how they highlight a prodigal God who loves every prodigal son and daughter. Prodigal means someone who seems to be wasteful, seems to be reckless. Of course, religion thought that this idea of a God who loves sinners was a reckless idea. But Jesus said, no, you've got it all wrong. You've got it all misunderstood. My my God, the, the God of whom I represent and the incarnation of, I'm showing you clearly who God really is. A God who loves relentlessly and pursues endlessly all of his sons and daughters. We've talked about Peter. Uh, Luke gives special attention to this particular prodigal follower slash unfollower of Jesus. Peter was exhibit A uh, within the story that echoes the heartbeat of the story of the gospel. Peter was the poster boy for the power of the gospel, for the redemption that the gospel promises. The veracity of the claims by the early church, by the church to this day, that Peter kind of just modeled what the church meant when we say God is for, not against. He has drawn near to those that have been cast out, those that have been drawn away, those that have been pulled under. The church became known as a safe haven for the cast out and the cast down because Jesus was a champion for the cast out and the cast down. Of course, you know how this story ends. But tonight, we're going to kind of look at the week that preceded the climax of the story. Even if Jesus did come to die, maybe you wonder, you know, I know Jesus came to die, and I know that the whole idea is Him dying for the sins of the world and raising for the life of the world. But maybe you wonder, I still can't understand how anybody would reject Jesus. I mean, even if it was all part of God's plan, how could anybody stare eyeball to eyeball with God in a body with the love and grace, holiness and human skin, right? How could anybody reject Jesus? I mean, how could anybody sensibly reject and turn down all that Jesus had to offer? I mean, when did He ever offer anything that would make life worse? I mean, He absolutely offers things that makes life better. How could anybody turn down the presence and the power and the pardon of God? It's complicated, isn't it? When you talk about how could anybody reject God? And of course, you all haven't rejected the Lord, you're here, but we've all rejected God's will before, haven't we? And it's complicated to try to explain why we do it, isn't it? It's complicated, but it's also not so complicated because ultimately, the condition sin has left the world in makes that the likely direction of humanity. Uh, that, That it would convince people to reject the very one who had their best interest in mind. And isn't that what sin does to you? Isn't that what sin does to everybody? It convinces us to turn away from the God who has our best interest in mind and we know His will is best. We know His way is better. Yet we still reject it. Of course, we can relate to this, can't we? It's easy to pile on the Pharisees and Sadducees and priests We ourselves have rejected what is best for us, haven't we? We do that all the time and we don't ever have to give a good reason, do we? We just do what we want to do. And we know how silly it looks. I mean, right, right. Isn't sin responsible for the most senseless and silly things that anybody does? You can insert a few other S words, right, that describe what sin makes you do. But tonight, we're going to try to understand just how many, how many people, how, how they could reject Jesus. 
How those who believed almost exactly what he did about God, those who believed that he was preaching from the Old Testament, those that believed he was fulfilling prophecies, tonight we're going to try to understand how they could stare him in the eyes and still say, nah. How they could stare him in the eyes and receive from his power and still say, no thanks. And not only, they weren't passive at all, were they? They were actually hostile and violent and vindictive towards him, weren't they? But how and why were they? We're going to jump into Luke 19, which is fitting for today, uh, being Palm Sunday, because this is really where things heat up. So Luke 19, verse number 28, is most of your Bibles probably have a heading, the triumphal entry. So we're going to read verses uh, verses 28 through 40, and this will really kind of set the stage for the tension going on behind the scenes the week leading up. To Easter. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, whereas you enter, you will find a colt or a donkey tied uh, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to them, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who, sent, who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said, Why are you loosening the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw, on their, they threw their own clothes on the colt, colt, and they sat Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was drawing near to the descent of the mountain of olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had been done and they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You've heard that before. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke! your disciples. And he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So you see what's going on here. The people had been buzzing. What if Jesus is the Messiah? And Peter had confessed he was the Messiah. And people began to whisper and had rumors had spread. Peter and John and James got on the mountain and they saw him in his glory. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And they began to wonder, oh my goodness, this is just so perfect. The week before Passover, he can ride into town. And there's that Old Testament prophecy. There's that Messianic prophecy about a Messiah riding in on a donkey. Right? Aren't you familiar with it? Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous, having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. And when Jesus asked his disciples to go and get a donkey, everyone began to just shout with glee. Yes, it's finally happening. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Our king has come. And if he's coming to Jerusalem, that means we're going to go to Rome soon because we're not going to stop with taking Jerusalem back. We're going to take the world because that's our destiny as God's people. Of course, they thought it was. They hoped it was. Of course, the story would take a turn 
wouldn't it? Jesus does not defer the praise, though, because He absolutely was the Messiah. The Messiah had come to do something different instead of a kingdom here and now, but He didn't defer the praise. He received it for His glory. He was indeed the long-awaited King. And isn't it fitting? Wouldn't it be so fitting if the story ended there in verse number 38? Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Wouldn't it be so fitting if Luke's story ended there and the result was a kingdom, right? And prosperity and peace for all forevermore. I mean, wouldn't it be so poetic and such a bookend of what the angels sang the night he was born? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill among men. I mean, wouldn't it be so fitting? But that's not how the story ends, is it? The Scripture goes on to say that later as they bask in what this could mean and what this might be the beginning of, Jesus in Jerusalem to rally His troops, to assemble an army, a legion. Now, you all are familiar. The Scripture is very quick to tell us how many people follow Jesus, right? Over and over again, the Gospel writers remind us that over 5,000 people were in the crowd. Do you know why that's important? Because a Roman legion was about 5,000 strong. And the writers would tell us there were 5,000 men. That means that Jesus' crowd, His entourage, had enough manpower. It could rival that of a Roman legion. Nothing could stop this train if it ever got moving in the right direction. Rome couldn't stop it. Heck, Jerusalem would be completely out to lunch against it. All Jesus had to do was say the word and the troops would be ready for battle. But as the party died down on Sunday, Jesus stood on a rooftop overlooking the city and He got kind of emotional. Verse 41 tells us, as He drew near, He saw the city or He looked out at the city and wept over it. Saying, if you had known even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And of course, the disciples are there thinking, Jesus, why are you crying? I mean, this is the beginning of something great. Why are you upset? And then he says something very strange and a little bit alarming. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now here's a little bit of a side story. Y'all know I get on this soapbox all the time. If these gospels had been written as late as some scholars try to claim they were, someone would have added in at the end of that, and it was fulfilled in 70 A.D., these Gospels were not written after 70 A.D. They were written before. And the ace in your sleeve, as you go and witness to people, people begin to ask questions. How in the world could Jesus so spot on predict exactly what would happen between 68 and 70 A.D.? As Rome would come in and surround the city and do exactly what He said they would do. But again, that's for another time. Jesus anticipated that things would not go as the parade suggested this week. He spoke as if the parade was not indicative of the near future, not only for Him, but also for the city of Jerusalem. 
Of course, not most everyone else thought things were just fine or better than they ever had been. The next day, Jesus enters the temple and sees what was customary. He sees sacrifices that were being examined as Passover was drawing near. And you have to understand, it's kind of like if you go to the airport, you, if you got a flight this afternoon or in the afternoon, you're going to get there early and get everything examined and get everything passed through customs. If you were going to sacrifice an animal for Passover, you needed to get there days in advance because it would take a long time to make sure that every lamb was clean um, and worthy of the Passover sacrifice. So something that had become par for the course in the temple where, uh, in, for, in, in, these, in this day and age was that the temple would upsell people on a better sacrifice. So you would bring your lamb into the temple and they would say, oh, I'm so sorry, you can't tell this, but we're experts and your lamb is unclean, your lamb is unworthy, so we're going to exchange it for a better lamb, but sorry, you're going to have to pay us a lot more money than you paid for this lamb, or you may have raised this lamb and you may have not brought any money with you, so hey, we'll loan you the money and then you'll owe us back exorbitant interest, but oh, it's, it's important, right? It's a necessary necessity. You've got to sacrifice to God, and you've came all this way, so you kind of have to play our game and play on our field, don't you? And the people would feel judged and condemned and so humiliated. And they would give the lamb. They would pay the money or borrow the money and contribute to this system, this mess, this insult to God. And often the same lamb would be taken, put out back for a little while, cleaned up a little bit, And then given to somebody else that was fooled a little bit later. The temple leaders knew they had control of people's souls. The religion can be a very profitable system. It still can be and still is. Jesus was none too pleased with this. And with his own sacrifice drawing near, he sent a very strong message against this mess. Verse 45. He went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. My house is a place where anybody and everybody can come and talk to God, but you've made it a marketplace where you're actually selling salvation to people. Shame on you. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. I mean, you know... I mean, destroy somebody. They could have just used kill him, right? But they were just, they were completely vitriolic against him. Destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive and they were so enamored by him. The religious leaders are indignant and incensed, but they didn't ask, what do you think you're doing? Their question to him over the next chapter is, who do you think you are, Jesus? Who do you claim to be, Jesus? They questioned the authority he conducted himself with. Jesus called their bluff. He said, y'all are rejecting the cornerstone just like the prophet said you would. Oh, and that really insulted them. God sent me, he tells them, to fulfill your law, to bring about the promise of salvation, but he sent me to teach you how to read the Old Testament. Y'all think it's the whole deal, but it's just partial. It's It's just a preview. I'm the real deal. Jesus trades barbs with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the politicians, and the pundits. And it becomes increasingly clear to them all that they needed to team together to destroy him if they wanted to retain what they had control of. So that 
so they all begin to meet and devise a plot. They make a pact. Jesus won't be alive past Passover. So you can read 20 and 21, which is their exchange of debates with Jesus. But chapter 22 opens up and tells us that behind the scenes, a plot begins to come together. Verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 22. Now the feast of the unleavened bread, the Passover, drew near. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. So they didn't know how to do it because they were afraid of the mobs. So they began to meet in secret, in privacy, about how they might put an end to Jesus, the Nazarene. So we've got to talk about the high priest for a minute to bring this into proper perspective. The high priest from, a, from year 18 A.D. to 36 A.D. was a man named Joseph Caiaphas. We've talked about him before. Caiaphas and his family had control of the temple for over 40 years. It was a dynasty. They had so much money. Uh, Jerusalem's religious scene in HQ was such a wealthy um, operation. The temple tax was poured in from Jews all over the world to, as people sought to keep a good standing with God. Caiaphas had so much power and influence, he had it made until Jesus began drawing people away from the temple. This movement that started with John the Baptist now overflowed around Jesus and it crescendoed around the triumphal entry. Rome was worried about the crowds, but Caiaphas was really worried about the crowds as to what it meant for his future. I mean, Jesus was popular. Caiaphas was put up with. No one respected or was amazed at what he said or who he was. He was a necessary evil. And nobody ever really cared. And he never really cared. It never really bothered him until Jesus showed up. And when, people, when Jesus spoke, people were astonished at the authority he spoke with. And people acknowledged him as being one greater than the scribes, greater than the priest, greater than Caiaphas. And with Luke having criticized them, or Jesus criticized them up and down, undresses the whole operation in Luke 20 and Matthew 23. You can read that as well. Caiaphas had his full of Jesus. And it built and it built. And the parade and the humiliation in the temple and the face of their questions, the camel's back was broken. But they needed a new strategy. If they were going to stop him... If they were going to get rid of Jesus, they needed more than just words and debates. He had proven His authority, not just through sermons, but through signs and wonders. He had turned water into wine, emphasizing something new was coming. He had raised a young boy back to life with just a spoken word. He healed a man that uh, had been waiting on religion to help him for decades. He fed 5,000, but when they tried to make him king, he said, no, thank you. Anybody else would have said, where do you want to build the castle? He preached and saw, he brought sight to the blind that religion had deemed incurable and condemned. And he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And in front of everybody at his funeral... He said loud and clear, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
So Jesus made it clear to everybody that day, I'm not just here to prevent you from sinning. I'm not just here to forgive you for sinning, but here to resurrect you from the graves of your sin. So hey, I can forgive you and I can prevent you, but if you're buried by your sin, there's hope for you too. Woo, right? That's the message of Easter, right? And now, the priests and the scribes and the leaders were desperate. It wasn't, just their, it wasn't just Jesus' words against theirs anymore. It was His work and His wonder over and above theirs. People weren't buying what they were selling anymore because God showed up and was giving it away for free. Look at what John says as, uh, in commentary of what was going on or what the, what the priests were saying. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Well, no joke, right? Of course they did, but here's what they say. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And little did they know how prophetic that statement was. John actually got insight to a meeting that Luke teases here in chapter 22 that took place when they began to discuss their plan B when they went, that went into full motion the week of the triumphal entry. I want you to look at that meeting for just a few minutes tonight. If you'll flip over with me to John 11, we'll turn back to Luke in a minute. But John 11, beginning in verse 45, is literal notes from the meeting. So John must have had a connection with someone who literally documented the meeting, right? As we document business meetings, right, in our world. John must have got the minutes of the meeting, and I'm sure John just had a lot of fun recording this and including this in his gospel. John 11, verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews who had come to Mary had seen the things Jesus did and believed in Him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. And the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. What are we going to do? How are we going to stop him or overcome him? Look, 48, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. If we, like they had the power over him, right? If we don't stop him. And here's what is so amazing about that statement. They knew that to resist Jesus was to resist God. They could tell that God was with him. Right? Isn't that what they're saying? He is so God's hand is on him in such a way that if we don't stop him, he's going to take the whole world. (laughs) Remember one of their own, Nicodemus, said, we know you're a man from God. Because how else could you do the things that you do? They knew what they needed to do, but the price was just too high for them. Because it would mean letting go, taking their grip off of what they thought was most important. Accepting Him would mean denying themselves. Denying themselves felt too much like dying to self. And little did they know that that was the key to finding true life. He goes on. If we let him alone, everyone will believe, and the Romans will come and take both our place and nation. So why why won't they give up the power? 
They're afraid of losing what they thought was more important. But here's the reality. Every time we decide to put Jesus first, it's going to cost us something. Absolutely, I'm not going to lie about that and hide that. I'm not saying it's not worth it. It absolutely is. But every time you put Jesus first, something has to go and will go. Give up time, money, energy. It goes deeper and more important. It's the reason why some don't attend. It's the reason why some don't give. It's the reason why some say, I can't, I can't, I can't. Because instead of giving to God off the top, we often give to Him what's left over because that's easier, isn't it? That's more convenient, isn't it? And guess what? That makes us miserable. Doesn't it? We'll always be convinced that we actually have done too much for God. When in reality, we've done nothing. People that give a little think they have given a lot. You know why? Because they're leaving too much on the table that turns back at us and controls us and says, why'd you give that away? That was yours. Leaving too much that will try to steal the joy of what little you gave. They're never truly free to enjoy Jesus and salvation. But you know what I know? People that give it all, they never look back. They don't miss anything. And they have zero regrets. That's the widow and the rich that offered to God. That's the story of anybody who followed Jesus because the reason we hesitate and the reason why we often push back because to follow Jesus means we've got to unfollow something else. To put Jesus first means that something else can't be first. This may affect job opportunities, relationships, finances, making Jesus Lord of your life. We know what we need to do, but the price sometimes is just too high. And that's the tension we live in, isn't it? That's the tension we find ourselves in. These men don't know what to do with Jesus, but here's what I would love to go back in time and say to them. Hey guys, he just raised a dead man back to life. If a guy can raise somebody back to life, you do whatever he says, give up whatever he says, give up, and follow him wherever he goes. Because if he can clean out a grave, you should go with him every time. Amen? Right? If a guy can say, come out of the grave, if a guy preview can come out of his own grave, I don't care what he asks you to do. How in the world could it be bad? And now could anything be better? You know that, don't you? We know that. But what had become life to them, center of all that was so important to them, they couldn't imagine giving it up. They thought, of what it might mean for the nation. Verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. He says, Hey, if we kill him, we'll all be fine. Rome won't come and squash us if we squash him first. We won't lose our temple or our nation if we get rid of him. And don't you think John was grinning from ear to ear when he wrote this next part? Now this he did not say of his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now Caiaphas did not mean that when he said that, right? He was thinking, hey, we get rid of him, we save ourselves. But John is grinning when he says, ha ha, the guy actually was prophetic 
when he said that. And isn't it amazing? If we remove Jesus from the equation, they thought, in conversation, our future will be protected. They thought, hey, we can preserve ourselves. But we actually find out from what Caiaphas and what John interprets what they said. They plotted to kill Jesus, but as they resisted Him, they actually facilitated God's will. Verse 52, And not for that nation only, but also that He would gather together in one the children of God scattered abroad. From that day on, they plotted to put Him to death. They made plans. They plotted. They thought they could stop the movement, but really they were just getting it started. Right? At the end of the day, like them, if we resist, we only illustrate how futile it is to resist God's will. But they thought, hey, we got to get rid of them. Sometimes it may be too much. We just can't, we feel like we can't accept or obey His will. But in our rejection and disobedience, we actually display how foolish it is to resist. And if we resist, we only will reflect the greater glory and truth of God. John had to be grinning again from ear to ear. They thought they could take his life. But Jesus said earlier, I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to pick it back up. Just try me, boys. God hears and sees our scheming and our plotting. He sees that we leave Him out so much. He grins. He's seen this before. We're so foolish to do such. Meanwhile, by Tuesday, Wednesday of Passover week, it became clear that Jesus wasn't going to lean into the momentum of the parade. He deferred the invitation to declare declare Himself King, even though the crowds were ready and waiting He leaves town and goes and hangs out with his friends in Bethany. And no one knows where he went but the twelve. And they're confused. They're perplexed. They didn't know what was going on. They expected him to declare himself king and change the world. One in particular wanted to believe that Jesus' talk about sacrifice and dying was just him being humble. But when Jesus began to talk about his death and Lazarus' sister anointed him for his death, one in particular, said, I'm out. Enter Judas Iscariot. Back to John 22, and we'll close. Verse number 3, it says, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him some money. So he promised and saw opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Judas came back into town. He saw the wanted posters, heard the reports of bribes being on the table, offers on the table. He goes to Caiaphas and said, let's talk. Working with Judas, with so many sermons that Judas had notes of, they twisted around. Caiaphas went, to, went hard to work to try to present Jesus as a threat, not just to Jerusalem but to Rome. He pegs Jesus with the charge of sedition because he claimed to be a king. Jesus was sent from the Sanhedrin to both Pilate and Herod after he was arrested. 
He cross-examined, was cross-examined by both, sent back and forth until finally Pilate would decide his fate. And Pilate thought Jesus was just a joke. At first he was insulted by his claims, but finally he felt sorry for him because he seemed to pose no actual threat to anybody. If you flip over to chapter 23, verse number 13, Pilate calls in Caiaphas, the chief priest, the rulers, and the people. And he says in verse 14, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people, and indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. Nor, no, neither did Herod. I sent you, back, uh, sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death was done by him. I will therefore chastise or whip him and release him. He says, Guys, I don't know what y'all are trying to pull, but this guy's not a threat. He says some crazy stuff, but y'all are crazy too. He claims to be a king, but he told me he was a king from some other planet, and I don't know what he's talking about, so he's not a threat. He's a little crazy, but he's not a threat. So I'm going to just beat him for wasting my time, and he's yours. But they were so against Jesus at this point, they didn't even know why. They didn't care anymore. They just wanted him gone. Verse 18, and they all cried at once, saying, Away with this man! Release to us Barabbas instead! Let another criminal loose in his place! Who had been thrown into prison for certain rebellion made in the city for murder. It was custom in Passover that someone could be released as long as somebody else could be pegged with those charges. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called to them. But they shouted to him, Crucify him! Crucify him! As Caiaphas led the chant. He said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I find no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voice of these men and the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. As they requested. And he released to them the one they requested for who, for who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Luke had to smile when he wrote that. So Jesus was crucified. The high priest and the council rejoiced. But the funny thing was, two resigned that next day. Nick and Joe. Nicodemus, famous for the nighttime meeting, and Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man who owned a close-by garden tomb. Caiaphas didn't care. Jesus was done for. Nick and Joe would be the ones who looked like fools when everybody else had forgotten who Jesus was in just a few weeks. Their positions were secured. Their movement was over. But then on the first day of Passover, the religious HQ was in a frenzy as reports began to swell throughout town that the body was missing. And then over the next few weeks, Jesus began, people reported that Jesus had been seen everywhere. And within the next month, the streets were filled with people preaching in his name. And it was almost like he was haunting the town. His movement didn't end, it was only beginning. And y'all know what happens next Judas kills himself, Caiaphas would lose his job. And Jerusalem would be destroyed before 70 A.D. And they all become footnotes to the story 
of the carpenter who couldn't be defeated. There's a little Caiaphas in all of us, isn't there? There's a little Judas in all of us, isn't there? We want to preserve and protect. We want to manipulate and we want to take. But isn't resistance so futile? Our greatest regrets often come on the heels of trying to protect something that we were going to lose anyway and did lose. And trying to take something that we soon after realize we don't even need. The things we put in the place of God will always disappoint. Next slide. The pressure to preserve and control will always drive us to self-destruct. We lose it and ourselves in the end anyways. And here's the grand conclusion that just blows my mind and should have us all weep and repent at how good God is to all of us. When you add together Caiaphas and Judas, you get Easter. Jesus was not taken away, but He was rather put on further, greater, and endless display. Doesn't this just show how sovereign our God is? How upside down His kingdom is? How it operates and takes what we think and makes it as He wills? The very enemies of Jesus were the literal reasons He died on the cross, yet His death was still their gain? And ours as well? They plotted to kill Him, but the plot twist was that God remained sovereign the entire time. Peter, when facing a threat years later, would write this. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They thought they were in control, but you actually were. Caiaphas and Judas aren't even credited or mentioned even though they spearheaded the plot to begin with. Yet that's the futility of resistance. We risk forfeiting everything, even our existence. You'll remember, Jesus wasn't crucified alone that day, was He? Two other actual criminals were there on His right and His left. One mocked Him just moments before death, but another was well aware that they were resisting God's will and where it had gotten Him. Soon He would be gone, forgotten. That's what crucifixions were meant to do. Erase people's memory from the record books. Yet in that moment, having heard Jesus offer up a prayer of intercession, asking God to forgive the ones who had turned against Him, Rather than judge them, he asked God to forgive them. That criminal knowing he was in the presence of someone who truly did not deserve the cross, knowing if there was a heaven, that Jesus was indeed headed there. Knowing he was about to be erased from history, judged by his own resistance and rebellion against God, he made one final request. He looked over at the crucified carpenter and he asked him, Lord, would you remember me? Because my existence is going to be forgotten after today. But you're not going to hell. Clearly, you are headed to the kingdom of God. And when you get there, 
Could you just remember me? I don't know if I'll feel that because I'll be dead and gone. Burned up or whatever. But could you at least remember me? So at least, at least it's not like I just existed and was forgotten. Do you think you could just remember me once in a while? As the fool who resisted you all of his life and got hung on a cross and is remembered by nobody? Could you remember me? And Jesus looked over at him and said, Today you will be with me in paradise. You're not going to be forgotten, buddy. Because you may have resisted me all of your life, but in this moment, when it mattered most, you surrendered. And that's what it's all about. And I give you something better than remembrance. I'm going to give you redemption and resurrection. Take it from the one who saw Jesus at the latest moment with his own eyes. Don't resist. It's never too late to surrender and receive everlasting life.